In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Technology Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Harry DeKetville, and in this episode we're going to explore the future of health, a future which inevitably will affect all our lives at some point before, well, we shuffle off this mortal coil. It's been provocatively stated that the world's first 200-year-old person has already been born. Can that possibly be true? Will the gradient of life expectancy continue to rise as it has over the last century? And how will healthcare providers cope with that challenge? As ever, we'll be speaking with entrepreneurs disrupting the sector, and we're also going to hear from the NHS to get its perspective on the role private startups and tech will play in the future of this uniquely public British institution. If you learn anything from this podcast, spread the word and tell your friends. If there's an issue you agree with or something you vehemently disagree with, well, we'd love to hear from you as well, so get in touch. We're on Twitter, at Telegraph Tech. That's at Telegraph Tech. Now, let's get into it. So here I am in the reception of University College London on Gower Street in central London. It's a horrible, rainy Monday morning, but in a moment I'll be going to the comfort and warmth of an office upstairs to get the academic perspective on the history of technology in healthcare. Hi, my name's Anne Blandford and I'm Professor of Human-Computer Interaction at University College London and I also direct the Institute of Digital Health. One of the things that Anne mentioned to us when we arrived was that the scalpel is a great example of technology in healthcare that's thousands of years old. So once we got the audio recorder up and running, that's where we started. The evidence about scalpels is that they were first found 8,000 years before Christ. So we've had... 10,000 years of basic health technologies such as scalpels. Very much about cutting things out, cutting off things that weren't working, leeches and even mechanical leeches were introduced as ways of bloodletting because that was believed to be um, positive for patients, though actually I think the clinical evidence is pretty thin. Um, But the biggest advances have really come arguably as a consequence of wars The Crimean War was an inspiration for 
developing quite a lot of new techniques and particularly the use of data. So although Florence Nightingale is known as the lady with the lamp, she's also credited with being one of the very first epidemiologists effectively in that she was looking at data and using it to reason about causes and effects and how to allocate resources within the context that she was working in. The Second World War also brought a bunch of technological innovations in healthcare. We've got developments in antibiotics and in the understanding of disease and the importance of hygiene, you know, antimicrobial resistance is still a huge challenge now. And yet we have made huge progress in that area. And pharmaceuticals more generally transformed healthcare in the last century. Then computers arrived on the scene. The first stored programme computer was delivered in 1948. That's kind of when we mark the history of computing, which is actually, you know, the same year that the NHS was founded. I think that's just a coincidence. (laughs) But computing technology really became accessible into healthcare in around the, the 1960s, 1970s. That's when we see the first developments in intensive care, for example. I think it's hard to imagine that people, you know, who are alive today had no idea about intensive care when they were small. There just wasn't that idea of continuously monitoring people, spotting deteriorating patients. Computing allowed us to to do the analysis in real time, I think is the key thing there. So I think that that was when a lot of technologies suddenly started to realise their potential. After the arrival of computers came better imaging, things like MRIs and CAT scans. Later came the digitisation of medical records, which isn't the sexiest technology, but it shouldn't be overlooked as an important innovation, because the creation of databases have opened up the potential for the analysis of very large datasets. And as artificial intelligence gets underway, that could lead to greater diagnosis and prediction about where things are going wrong with your health. Right, so that's a very brief potted history of tech in healthcare, and we'll return to Anne at the end of today's episode for some analysis of the future. But next, we're heading over to Fitzrovia to hear from an entrepreneur who is looking to use technology to shape the way patients are accessing healthcare itself. I'm Ali Parsa, I'm the founder and the CEO of Babylon, and we created Babylon thinking, can you make healthcare accessible, affordable, put it in the hands of every human being? On Earth, Can you do with healthcare what Google did with information? Get most of the healthcare most people need and put it on devices most of them already have. Now, if you think about accessibility, that's almost easier. We all now have devices in our pockets, and it doesn't really matter if you're in the UK or in Rwanda. People now have accessibility. We do not need to build clinics, roads to give you most of the healthcare most people need. And that's important because we're not talking about everything. Google did not give you every piece of information you needed, give you most of what you needed. The problem is there is no accessibility without affordability. So then the question becomes, how do you make healthcare so affordable that everybody can access it? Ali explains that the cost in healthcare breaks down into two areas. Two thirds goes on salaries, as doctors and nurses are quite expensive and we need a lot of them. And then there's the issue of timing. We're currently reactive in healthcare. We're fixing things once symptoms indicate an issue. And Ali argues that this means a £10 problem becomes a £100 or a £1,000 solution by the time it gets treated. That's where the other money goes. So if you can figure out ways to 
augment the ability of doctors and nurses to deal with a lot more people in a lot more concise period of time, eliminate the waste in their work on one hand. And if you can figure out a way to see diseases before they manifest their symptoms, you should be able to get healthcare done significantly more cheaply and therefore increase accessibility. And that's what we do in Babylon. We create technologies and machines that can do much of what a doctor does so that a doctor can do the things machines cannot do. And we create technologies that can predict your health in a way that a human being will find it very difficult to do, but in a way that machines and observations and monitoring systems can. In November, Babylon Health launched their newest service, GP at Hand, which provides a primary care alternative to your local surgery. Through a smartphone or computer or tablet, patients can first interact with an AI chatbot for an initial diagnosis. Then, if they want to or need to speak to a human, they can book an appointment within seconds and have a video consultation with an NHS GP, typically in under two hours. Then they can have an in-person visit at one of GP at Hand surgeries available within a day or two. We have created artificial intelligence that can diagnose 80% of primary care diseases almost, almost as accurately as a human doctor can. So what we do is when you come to Babylon now, the machine asks you, in a chatbot, hey, how can I help you? And we will put that onto other platforms, right? And the answer is, hey, my head hurts. So the machine will ask you exactly the same kind of questions that doctor will ask because diagnosis is basically uh, looking at the probability of what can be wrong with you, right? You say my ear hurts, there is a pressure in my nerve, that's what the pain is. Is that pressure an inflammation? Is it an infection or is it a tumor? And that's what you ask a series of questions in order to establish that and say most probably is this. Well, it happens that machines are significantly better than humans in probabilistic modeling. So it can actually, our machine can now look at billions of variations of symptoms in milliseconds. It could look at hundreds of millions of knowledge bases in a way that a human brain is only limited to a few million. So we will soon be able to predict and to diagnose significantly better than a human can. But today we can do almost the same job. So what impact is GP at hand having? Now, you 40% of our patients, what we are seeing, is are talking to the machine and reassuring themselves and do not need to go and talk to a doctor. Of the ones who go, we can give the doctor the diagnosis and therefore reduce the amount of the time the consultation takes by another 40%. And there are natural language processing system is listening to the conversation the entire time, and it can write the notes that the doctor usually spends 10 to 15% of their time writing for them. So now 40% of the patients don't go. Of the ones who go, we can save the doctor another 40% in consultation times and another 15% in writing notes time. Now your 75% less time is required to deal with a patient. And the patient satisfaction is much higher because the accuracy and the consistency of what you've given them is a lot more. And that leaves time for doctors to do two things. One is to see more patients. And two is to spend more time with you being human. Not to say that I have to rush because I have somebody else outside, but to say, trust me, I will help you through this tough time and get you to the other side. But what are the costs, you might ask? It's free. GP at hand is an NHS service delivered 
by us on behalf of the National Health Service in Britain. And it's wonderful that we live in a country that is freely available. By the way, if you decide that you want to keep your existing GP, therefore the allocation shouldn't go to us, but it should go to your GP, so you want to pay for it, it's only £5 a month. And that's the beauty of technology. It's the fact that we can make so much savings in redundancies, in wastage, that we can deliver a much, much better service at much, much lower prices. So remember when I was describing to you how we could save 75% of the cost? Well, that basically means for the same amount of money, we can deliver four times of the service. Ali Pasa. Local GP surgeries, which at times are privately run, get paid by the NHS to treat each person registered with them, which is how GP at hand's costs get covered if it's your primary GP practice. In a time where people often have to wait a week for a GP appointment on the NHS, the speed of access to care through GP at hand appears quite revolutionary, and this has been reflected by the number of patients registering through the app, currently more than 25,000 of them, although it's not available nationally. It has certainly ruffled some feathers. Shifting our focus from patients to doctors, we've come to another reception, this time in Old Street, near London's Silicon Roundabout, that tech hub. And our next entrepreneur is using technology to assist healthcare professionals rather than patients. He's allowing surgeons and trainees to practice procedures anytime, anywhere, through the use of a smartphone or tablet-based app. My name's Andre Chow. I'm one of the co-founders here at Digital Surgery. In my former life, uh, I was a general surgeon um, training here in London, down the road at Imperial College, did my PhD there, NHS trained, worked in kind of Northwest Thames area of London, and then kind of, I say, fell into this about five or six years ago, which is when I kind of gave up my, my clinical practice to focus on improving surgery using digital tools. It was like, you know, the toughest decision of my life to give up, like day-to-day -day clinical practice. But I still feel so connected with healthcare. And I think that, you know, what we're building here can ultimately have, you know, a larger impact um, on global health than I could have ever done if I'd just stayed as a surgeon. Andre explains the old adage relating to how surgeons learn. See one, do one, teach one. Which, from the patient side, might seem a little scary. So digital surgery is providing a different way for surgeons to learn. Our software takes complex procedures, breaks it down into a series of kind of key steps and decision points. People are looking at this on their iPad? I iPhone, iPad, Android devices. Um, and the, the key thing is to think about is that Surgery is broken down into two major skills. There's your technical skill, which is kind of how good your hands are, which everyone understands, but there's also how well you make decisions or your cognitive skills. We focus on that cognitive aspect of surgery. Uh, we get your brain up to that level of cognition that allows you to be safe when you get into the operating room. Um, our next kind of level of software helps you when you're in the operating room to give you the appropriate cues or tips or checklists within the operating room space to actually then help you deliver that safe surgery. Um, and that's kind of the, the digital ecosystem that we're building. And what technologies is the app using? We use a whole range of technologies here. I mean, we, we started off essentially by, by jumping on the mobile technology train, right? Without mobile, we wouldn't exist, right? We wouldn't have the penetration and the spread that we have. Uh, without cloud computing, we wouldn't be able to deliver the services 
to surgeons around the world in the way that we do. Without real attention to kind of like data architecture and data science, we wouldn't be able to kind of collect the detailed knowledge about surgical procedures and disseminate those to surgeons in the way that we do. We're investing heavily in kind of machine learning and computer vision technologies at the moment, finding areas where computers can enhance surgical decision-making is a key focus for us. And we think that, you know, machine learning is going to have a big part in that. Augmented reality kind of in the operating space, I think is very early at the moment. I think one day it'll happen. I'm not so convinced that the, the hardware is quite ready yet. A surgeon wears a headset. Um, he's viewing the operating field through that headset, overlaid on the headset are bits of information that relate to that surgery um, that help him or her kind of uh, make the right decisions at the right time. Um, yeah, that's, that's the kind of, I guess, what people feel augmented reality in the operating room really means. And so if this develops, will humans just not be involved? It's a very difficult question. I think surgeons are going to be performing surgery for a very long time. The path to automation is long, it's complex, there are many steps. And you're going to automate little bits by little bits by little bits. You never may end up with full automation, but ultimately the, the, the aim of the game is to end up with a much safer system, right? So, you know, in aviation, pilot's still there. You probably have enough technology to, you know, get things right 99.9% .9 of the time. But that, that tiny fraction of a percent means you still need that pilot there. But what you've done with all this automation and all this data and all this, all this technology has made aviation just super safe. That's what we want to do in surgery, right? You want to make it really safe. The aim is not to remove the human. That's not the aim. The aim is to create safe surgery for everyone. But if robots can technically be so accurate, more accurate than humans during surgery, why wouldn't we use them as quickly as possible? There are robots out there that have such fine dexterity they have more degrees of freedom than the average, than the human hand. Um, they have tremor reduction. They can, you know, take your gross movements and make them microscopic. So we're already at that point where technically, I think machines can perform better than humans. The gap that you have is cognitively. They don't know what to do. It's like you can tell it what to do or you can control it with your hands and it can do it in a very fine motion, but knowing what to do and when that's the hard part at the moment. That's, that's the problem that we haven't understood. And so like Babylon Health and their GP at Hand app, is digital surgery another example of a private company working with the NHS? The NHS is a, you know, a wonderful institution um, and one that I would really hope that we get the chance to work with properly um, someday. Figuring out how the two organisations kind of work together is, is a challenge that we haven't quite yet figured out. The thought of working with a large institution like the NHS is incredibly attractive, but the realities of getting your foot in the door are, you know, very, very challenging. Andre Chow. So I've now trudged back to the Telegraph offices. So far, we've heard from entrepreneurs who are using technology to bring innovation to healthcare. But we've not yet heard from the NHS. And after all, that's the organisation through which the majority of us actually get our healthcare in the UK. So it's time to hear from them. 
My name is uh, Tony Young. I'm a consultant urological surgeon that's uh, really a plumber of the urinary tract, but I'm also the national clinical lead for innovation for the health service at NHS England. Before the NHS was formed, we undertook, I think, probably the largest social innovation in this country that the world had seen. Um, certainly in the last century, the first country to provide universal health care coverage to our population. And we come from a very difficult time just after the Second World War. We were rebuilding our country. It was quite a dark time for this country, actually. And people were scared when they got sick because there were charitable hospitals and there was a private establishment for medical care, but there wasn't universal coverage. And the NHS, for the first time, bought in that ability for whoever you were to be cared for because of your clinical needs rather than your ability to pay. Since the arrival of the NHS 70 years ago, life expectancy rates in the UK have risen from 65 to 80 or 82. And Tony thinks this is a direct result of technological innovations through improved treatments of strokes, heart attacks and cancers, and vaccinations against infectious diseases. The problems that exist now are very different to those that existed in 1948. Acute conditions with sudden and severe onset were previously the main challenges. Well, they've become less common, and instead today it's ongoing chronic conditions which are taking up the majority of the NHS's time and resources. I think about 70% of our budget in the National Health Service now goes on the management of those new conditions. So our challenge for us as we enter our 71st year is to say, how can we reinvent ourselves? How can we continue to provide all those needs around acute conditions and things that we still have, but actually face the challenges we now face around managing long-term chronic conditions more and more and closer to people's home. Acute conditions needed to be dealt with in hospital. Chronic conditions are often better managed in people's own home with their families, with their loved ones around them. So let's look at one very exciting area of healthcare tech, genomics. This is based on recent work which mapped the so-called human genome, unravelling your whole DNA to see where various bits fit in. Well, at the beginning, mapping the human genome was tremendously expensive. The cost of doing that for one genome in 2000, we could have done 20 of those with the whole NHS budget in 2000. Today in 2018, it's nearly fallen to £500 per whole genome screen. So there are parts of technology as um, they develop and the quantity of tests and things they're doing goes up where it absolutely exponentially drops down. New technologies can be expensive when you first introduce them and we couldn't have afforded to do that with the human genome screen now. But in our 70th year, 2018, our ambition is later this year in the autumn we will become the first country to roll out whole genome screening to our population in the NHS for cancer and rare diseases. So I think it was 1952 when we decoded DNA in this country. We unraveled that genome in 2000 with the first whole human genome screening. And in 2018, our 70th year, we're going to be the first nation to give access to our population to that for their healthcare. And I think that's a fantastic story. And what benefits might genome screening and genomics bring down the line? Oh, predictalytics is what you're getting into. That's an Americanism, if that's the right term for it. So this is... Uh, uh, quite a big area, particularly in the United States, and it's coming here. So how can we bring together the results and the data from your whole genome screen? Those other aspects we know, 
from your phenotype and what that means by how your genes have expressed themselves. So your um, environmental exposure, the medications you're taking, a whole variety of other things that come together because no two people are the same. You might go and see your doctor and say, oh, I have some abdominal pain in the right upper side of my abdomen here. But if you've previously got a history of bowel surgery or perhaps of cancer or radiotherapy or you're taking particular... All these things mean it's slightly different. And if you're from a different ethnic group, it might be slightly different. Or if you're a different height or a different weight than someone else, then the things that might be causing that might be slightly different. So how can we take those data sets all together that are relevant to an individual and start predicting things? How can you take not just the data about your genome and about your medical journey and pathway, but about your environmental exposure, other things, and bring them all together to personalise your journey and start making risk predictions about you. Of course, this brings up ethical questions around your data. So how is the NHS addressing this? We have, I think, one of the most in the world, we've got one of the most advanced setups around ethics, around governance, around data that's been established. Um, Certainly on the 100,000 Genome Project, this is a, a project where patients are prospectively Um, screened and they sign the appropriate consents to take that forward and they're in control of their data and who has access to that. So data and privacy of that data is incredibly important but data sharing is very important too. So many patients who come and see me in my clinic in Southend Hospital um, assume they might have come from Basildon or Chelmsford Hospital to come and see me, assume that I've got access to all their records and their CT scans and other things they've been referred to me for, but they're different hospitals and we don't necessarily have access to that data immediately across that. So there are some examples where data sharing would be of real benefit and I think it's our job as healthcare professionals to make that case to our population on where that's going to be a benefit. But there are some things when it's absolutely right that we have some of the strongest controls, strongest consent, strongest governance processes for data sharing that there are anywhere across the world. Despite the frontline challenges the NHS is facing, Tony thinks that technology makes now the most exciting time ever to be in healthcare because of genomics, the advances in digital health, how care and services are delivered, connected devices, the use of drones. There's a lot to be optimistic about. But Tony does have one concern. We mustn't forget that technology is fine and it's an enabler. But if we bring new technology in, as great as it may seem, but people end up more socially isolated, then I don't think it will be adopted The other thing we have to be really careful of as we go forward is bringing in technology so that it creates equality across healthcare. We wouldn't want some people to have access to certain technology and that produces an inequality in the system. So not only do we have to personalise healthcare, looking at the human genome and the great work we've done in that and our 100,000 genome project, but personalised medicine shouldn't just be about looking at your genome and what drugs you might be sensitive to and what you should have, but also what technology is right for you. Some people will love to have um, virtual consultations and connect with their doctor via a video link. Other people still want that very face-to-face connection. And I'm, I'm reminded of a couple of lines from a Maya Angelou um, poem that she wrote that said, um, people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget the way you made them feel. 
And how we make people feel, in my experience, as a practicing clinician in the NHS, is the most important part of a consultation. And if we can use technology to enhance that, then that's fantastic. But it mustn't detract from that doctor-patient interaction. I see technology as an enabler that will unlock the ability of clinicians to have time to become navigators of people through the system. Traditionally, doctors have been the gatekeepers to knowledge and technology. And in the future, what I see is what I call a a democratised, personalised health and care revolution where the patient is put in charge of much of the knowledge, much of the technology. And as clinicians, our job in the future is going to be to be their navigator and their guide through the system. So we've heard from a couple of entrepreneurs one who's working with the NHS and another who'd like to. But how open is this great public organisation to working with the private sector? Should the NHS invent absolutely every single thing, every single drug, every single piece of technology? I don't think we have ever done that. We need to bring the latest, greatest things and advances from across the world to the benefit of our patients. And that's in the future as we move towards that, that's what I believe we're doing. And if we can show and prove and test and trial it, that it's going to be a benefit to our patients, as I say, that improves not just safety and, and quality, but cost effectiveness too, then I think we should be embracing that technology and looking at how we take it up. Looking to the future, what role does spending play in improving our NHS? So in our country, we spend a little bit less than 9% of GDP. In America, it's about twice that, about 18%. They spend twice the amount, but life expectancy in America is two years less than it is in the United Kingdom. So just spending more money doesn't actually give you a longer life, if that's what you're looking for as an output of quality in the healthcare system. So arguments around money and funding, it was the largest social innovation in the last century, the establishment of the NHS. We should be really proud of that. The challenge we face for the future, I think, is leading the world in saying, now we face the new conditions, the chronic conditions. How can we continue to support those as we move forward? We're up for the challenge in the NHS. We're testing and trialling and exploring new things and pathways. We're going to make sure they're safe before we deploy them at scale across our system. So there are large challenges. How that is funded, ultimately, though, is the decision for our democratic system. Now, as we saw from the WannaCry virus, an increasingly digital future means the potential for cyber security failures is only increased. So presumably, this is something to be pretty wary of. There are all sorts of risks around anything we do in healthcare. I would argue that the risks of not digitising the system we have far outweigh the risks which we can plan for and mitigate against of not doing. If people were suggesting we should go back to analogue x-rays, where we had to have a large x-ray basement in the hospital where physical films were stored, a porter had to go and get them, the number of times, uh, I'm old enough, I'm afraid to remember those days, when a patient would turn up to clinic and their x-rays didn't, and I couldn't see them, and their treatment had to be delayed as a result. It was numerous. That never happens now because of the digitization. So I think there are many benefits. Improved speed of diagnosis, having your records accessible to a range of different clinicians that are improving treatments. So there are always benefits and risks to every situation. I don't think 
Anyone I know in healthcare would argue we should roll back the digital revolution in our lives, let alone in healthcare, to the analogue days. In fact, if we got rid of all electronics then and the internet altogether, there would be no risks from this. And we, No one's proposing we do that. But how do we move forward in a safe and appropriate way? We led the world in inventing the internet in this country. We've got some really bright, smart people across our system working to ensure that our system is safe. And we're continuing... You have to remember, look at the proof. We are delivering more high-quality procedures with better outcomes year on year on year in the National Health Service. And there are very few places that can make that claim. So let's return to Anne at UCL for some final thoughts, beginning with what she thinks of Babylon Health's GP at Hand app. I think that that's a very exciting view of the future, but... It will only deal with a particular sector of the population. You know, I cannot imagine my parents phoning up Babylon Health. The needs of people who are less articulate for whatever reason, whether that's due to age or due to education, that means that actually it needs much more of a personal touch and dealing with the complex multimorbidities and dealing with knowing somebody as a person, and having that sense of continuity of care, it's not clear to me that AI techniques can yet deal with those kinds of things. And without explicitly focusing on issues like what it really means to care and what it means to provide continuity of care and how to elicit things from people that they may be often very reluctant to talk about and that can't be measured just by pointing a digital device at somebody. Healthcare is about all of those things and requires those skills, which are not all computational. And how about digital surgery and the movement towards artificial and virtual reality? So most of the AR and VR that I'm familiar with is about training for surgery. So it's training the kinds of doctors who actually have the least face-to-face engagement with patients because the, the patient is, you know, without any offence, an object at the time that they're being operated on, inevitably, you know, that that's what you're dealing with. Whereas a lot of healthcare is actually about the face-to-face and the working with the patient, particularly for longer-term kind of chronic conditions. You know, it is about encouraging people to adapt their lifestyle, to learn to live with this chronic condition, to learn to manage it. And that is a very human kind of behaviour. So AR and VR, I think, have a fantastic role in some aspects of healthcare and training for some aspects of healthcare. And indeed, kind of almost like delivery it at the end of the day. So it's it's recognising the, the skills that are needed for different clinical specialisms and the skills of the surgeon are really important skills, but they may be some of the skills that are more taken over by computers, whereas the softer skills that go with general practice and go with managing long-term conditions and deal with the emotional side of coming to terms with the cancer and how to, to treat a cancer, those are human skills. And I don't think VR and AR are yet well developed for training about those skills. In principle, of course, they can be used for training about the human skills as well. But that's not where they've been applied so much to date. And how is the NHS getting on? I think we live in really challenging times because the NHS, although it is labelled as one organisation, actually it's 168 clinical commissioning groups, I believe, certainly that kind of number, who are autonomous and who at the moment 
behave very independently and each does its own procurement. And I think that poses a real challenge. It poses a challenge for entrepreneurs who are trying to sell into the NHS because they have many different audiences, but it also poses a challenge for the NHS in being able to assess which of these technologies are actually worth investing in and which are not. So I think we are at a challenging and difficult time where actually we need almost more centralisation around some of the decision-making about which of these technologies the NHS should be investing in as opposed to the individual consumer investing in. At the moment, there's a bit of a bottleneck there because entrepreneurs are coming up with all these amazing ideas, many of which actually take a huge investment to establish that they're actually clinically safe and clinically effective and usable and acceptable and all those other words that you need to evaluate these these technologies. But the NHS doesn't have the infrastructure necessarily to support the most appropriate developments in these areas and to integrate those into the NHS. Anne explains that while back in the 1970s there was certainly a blossoming of technology, right now there's a veritable explosion of technology. It's so dramatic that it's incredibly hard to know just how to manage it. So is there any way that these mounting challenges can be met? There needs to be more digital expertise, more technology expertise actually built into the NHS. I don't know how long ago pharmacists became an official kind of healthcare role, but, you know, essentially pharmacists are chemists brackets, specialising in healthcare. We need the same for technology. Technologists who have dual skills in particular aspects of technology, whether it's AI or behaviour change technologies or whatever, specialising in healthcare. And so becoming a new style of healthcare professional that doesn't really exist properly yet. Anne Blanford. So, speaking to all our contributors, I've come to realise there are lots of challenges ahead for healthcare, with current global disparities in the quality of provision. But innovation might help even that up. For one thing, doctors in remote places might get access to knowledge and techniques they might never have heard about. But for another, patients themselves will have access to greater knowledge, and so even up that power relationship between themselves and healthcare professionals. Then there's the fact that, in an increasingly digitised world where our data can be used to improve treatments as well as predict and prevent future issues, there's a lot to gain from having access to huge data sets. But as Facebook found with the Cambridge Analytica scandal, ensuring patient consent and privacy is handled correctly, well, that'll be key to ensuring public trust. And as the NHS found recently with its breast cancer screening errors, automation and digitised systems can be fallible too, and they need to be monitored and assessed regularly to ensure that what they've been assigned to do, well, they actually do. Perhaps nothing is more critical for future healthcare provision in Britain than that relationship between big and public and small and private. On the next episode of the Technology Intelligence Podcast, we'll be hearing from entrepreneurs, including Werner Vogels of Amazon, to get a better idea of how our homes of the future will be changed by emerging tech. Now, as mentioned at the top of the episode, if you've enjoyed the show or learned something from it, feel free to tell your friends and share it online. If you don't agree with something or really do, let us know. We'd love to hear your thoughts on what the future might hold. Subscribe to this podcast for updates, and if technology is your thing, you can hear a daily update on the latest technology news from The Telegraph by searching for Telegraph Technology on any Amazon or Google device. Until next time, goodbye!
This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.